you know, yeah, baptism is a, is a ritual celebrated once, but the condition in which you're established by baptism lasts for your whole life. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the places where you most show yourself uh, a baptized person is in the participation of the Eucharist, okay? Welcome back to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. I'm Brother Israel, and this is episode 23, which is the second part of our discussion on baptism out of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Before we go on to the episode, I wanted to take the time to give a shout out to a few of our listeners Over the last couple months, I've had a chance to meet several of you, our listeners, here on the hilltop. So a special shout out to uh, Teresa, who volunteers here at the library, to Greg, an officer in Portland, and he also does a lot of good work at his home parish, running a men's group. And then I also met Joey, who came to the hilltop for a discernment retreat, so it was great to meet some of our listeners, to get a chance to say hello, and also to put a face to the anonymous listeners of our podcast. God bless you and all of you who listen to us. And without further ado, here's episode 23. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so uh, chapter six, let's go back to that. Uh, we'll start at verse 7. A man who is dead has been freed from sin. Okay, we already got that one worked out. If you're dead, you don't do anything wrong. But uh, if we have died with Christ, and in that sense, we are supposedly dead. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we are also to live with him. We know that Christ, once raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no more power over him. His death was death to sin once for all. His life is life to God. All that's about Christ. Now watch him bring it to us in verse 11. In the same way, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. That's he, Paul is urging us to consider ourselves in that way. I must think of myself as dead to what? To sin and alive to God. Alive to God, the Father, the glory of the Father who raised him from the dead. And then he develops that. That's where the passage in the vigil stops, okay? And that's the passage that most of us are going to know. But it's really worth our reading on in the following verses because Paul develops it very nicely, the kind of problems we're talking about. Uh, how how do we get out of sin? All this is very lovely, but Nelson, your question is the question of us all, and I'm sure <laughs> the question of all who's, whoever's listening to this podcast also, uh, because this is all very beautiful, but I can't get out of sin, so what are we going to do about that? Uh, the exhortation continues. Do not, therefore, let sin rule your mortal body and make you obey its lusts. No more shall you offer the members of your body to sin as weapons for evil. Rather, offer yourselves to God 
as men who have come back from the dead to life and your bodies to God as weapons for justice. Mm -hmm. So here, Paul is seeing something, he's zeroing in on the body uh, and the body with its lusts. And, and this doesn't just mean think of sexual sins. No, that's not all that we're talking about here. We're talking about we are living in the body. We are living in the flesh. Uh, this whole reality is, is tending toward both sin and death. It has all been under the domain of Satan who produces in humanity sin and death. And we have died to that. And so what do you, and yet here we are, we still have bodies. We're still alive in some way. So what do you do with your body? What do you do with your life? You're still alive. He says, and he uses the word offer. Offer yourself to God as someone who, as people who have come back from the dead to life and offer your bodies to God as weapons for justice. This is magnificent. So justice is the same word of what Christ himself has achieved for us. Justice means uh, being right in a right relationship with God and being in a right relationship with your body and with your life in the flesh. And the word offering uh, is, is very nice because Paul is concerned. He, he's going to he climax this later in the letter at chapter 12. And uh, Nelson said he's reading an article that I wrote on this in, in the Pauline class. You, you know the body, uh, chapter, chapter 12, the letter to the Romans is a turning point in the whole letter. It begins with, verse 1, begins with the word, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, your spiritual worship. He's already got the theme here in chapter 6 of offer your bodies. Uh, Christ offers his body on the cross and lets his body, lets all the sin of the world be killed in his body. So, and now you offer your body for righteousness. Verse 14, sin no longer has power over you. You are now under grace not under the law. That's a, that, see, that, that's got to help us. Sin will no longer have power over you. And we have to keep coming back under that energy by, by being aware of the likeness of death that baptism is, or we could say by our regular access to the likeness of death and resurrection that the Eucharistic body and blood of the Lord is. Mm. It's, it, you know, every day we consume the Lord's body and blood. What can you conclude from that? Sin will no longer have power over you. You have to let that power flow. Anyway, there's more, but let's pause here. What are your reactions to this? One, one immediate reaction 
just reflecting on the question of, you know, because we could obviously read the letter and try to construct, you know, what the community was like at the time that was receiving this letter, what kinds of controversies were stirring the community up and causing Paul to write. Um, and that, you know, that would be very speculative, but I think one thing that just comes really clearly to me is when we acknowledge the reality that we do, that I still sin, I've been baptized, I've been baptized for like 26 years. Why am I still sinning? You know, it should have taken effect now. Um, and I, definitely one thing that I hear now really strongly, St. Paul trying to emphasize the fact, well, don't then turn around and say baptism didn't work. Don't turn around and say that what Christ has done has been ineffective. Um, so I, I hear that. I don't know. That, I don't know if that was a question that was being asked by the community, but it sounds like an emphasis Paul is trying to put. He's trying to say, "Well, let's let's look at what actually happened during baptism, and see if that can't help us understand why you're still living in sin." Um, mm-hmm. That seems to be the movement here, and that's where we're jumping in the sin part now. One thing Saint Paul is guarding us against is making sin you know, starting from the point of sin and then saying, look, I'm still sinful, and then looking back and saying, therefore, baptism didn't work. Um, but he's doing it the other way around. He says, well, let's start with baptism and then look at your sin in that context. Um, but also the, the aspect of, you know, often Romans is pointed out, you know, the letters of the Romans is pointed as St. Paul's, you know, prioritizing faith over works, but if you read, I mean, if you read starting with verses, you know, 12, this is like a lot of work that St. Paul's putting forth. It's not work that's separate from the reality of baptism or from the reality of our faith, but it like belongs to what it means to be baptized. Um, that was another thought that came up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Off of your thought about, um, not blaming baptism for our continuous sinfulness. There's a quote from John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor. Only in the mystery of Christ's redemption do we discover the concrete possibilities of man. It would be a very serious error to conclude that the church's teaching is essentially only an ideal. Christ has redeemed us. This means that he has given us the possibility of realizing the entire truth of our being. He has set our freedom free from the domination of concupiscence. And if redeemed man still sins, this is not due to an imperfection of Christ's redemptive act, but to man's will to not avail himself of the grace which flows from that act. Yeah, that sounds like a summary for sure. That's very, very much in the line of just all that Paul would be saying here. No? What do you know? <laughs> so, I guess my question is, um, we've been talking about how bap- we're mostly talking about baptism and how that unites us to Christ's saving power of the cross and raising to new life. And we've also mentioned the Eucharist, how important that is of because baptism is like a one-time, one-time sacrament, very important, and in, and we're talking about it's important to recall that and to live that. Um, but the Eucharist is something we can receive every day, and also unites us to Christ and can be a helpful way to restore a relationship to God and to strengthen that. And our problem we've been talking about of sinning 
why are we sinning if we've been baptized? I guess my question is bringing in another sacrament, the sacrament of reconciliation, confession. Um, how does that tie in? Because that's another thing. People are like, well, I just confess the same sins all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I guess how does that tie into Christ's um, Paschal mystery and you know our baptism as sons and daughters of God? It can perhaps be helpful to think about how the sequence uh, of the sacraments of initiation is, and we've been talking about it in, uh, you know, how you see it so clearly in the Paschal Vigil, but the sequence is baptism, confirmation as a sealing of, in the Holy Spirit of, of that death and resurrection, and then first Eucharist, so that, uh, the first Eucharist is what completes the whole initiation process and being a, a baptism doesn't. So mm. baptism gets us to the Eucharist and with all that the Eucharist accomplishes in us. And the goal of baptism, you could say even, is Eucharist yeah. and uh, all that uh, is achieved in the Eucharist. Uh, and what the Eucharist uh, so then the Eucharist becomes the regular access, our regular way of leave, living. The norm of Christian life is Sunday Eucharist and, uh, and the blessing of daily Eucharist, if we can have that. So that what we're, we're constantly coming back into the space that we arrived at first from baptism. Uh, so that Caleb, if, you know, yeah, baptism is a, is a ritual celebrated once, but the condition in which you're established by baptism lasts for your whole life. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the places where you most show yourself uh, a baptized person is in the participation of the Eucharist, okay? Mm-hmm. You're, as a, yeah, I think I've used that expression before. We think of the, you know, you need to be ordained to be a priest to celebrate Mass, but you need to be baptized to participate in Mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that this is the this is the greatest use of our baptism is participating in the Eucharist. So uh, <laughs> sinning just uh, mucks that up. Sinning sin, mucks up our access to the Eucharist. And so uh, the sacrament of reconciliation is a sacrament which repairs our baptismal purity, which we have betrayed somehow by sin. Mm -hmm. And uh, it becomes, on a a very practical level, uh, it becomes a sacramental restoration that puts us once again in condition to celebrate the Eucharist worthily uh, so that a good confession uh, has you as pure as you are on the day of your baptism. But the, the sacrament of reconciliation is geared toward Eucharist in, as its completion in the same way that baptism itself is geared toward Eucharist. So, you know, you wouldn't be living a full Christian life if you just went around, went to confession all the time, or, you know, did all your sins, and but once a month go to confession, but never go to Eucharist. Well, that's no good. So it, it, it aims at Eucharist. Hmm. 
And I don't know if that helps, but uh, no. certainly it some helps. of me. Mm -hmm. The flag, sorry, Caleb. Go ahead. To flag something about how one of the, one of, or if not the best use of our baptism is participating at the Eucharist. Yeah. I wonder, this may be a bit of a cynical comment, <laughs> thinking about like our pragmatic mentality, how to participate in the Eucharist, we think that that means having a job to be an extraordinary minister or to be a lector or to be an usher. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we can, if we can highlight that more. Like, no, actually, to participate in the Eucharist is a gift that we've been given by virtue of our baptism, and just like to to use our baptism, the best way to use our baptism is to participate in the Eucharist with our act of participation, with our prayers, with our with our presence, with our with our intentions, with our petitions. Right. We're looking in the in the canon law class, actually, we wouldn't want to say a gift, but even a responsibility mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. remain like as a baptized person in the church, you have the responsibility to remain in communion. Uh, this is a beautiful Father Paul did a beautiful job of, of doing a sort of exegesis on canon law, but by virtue of your baptism, you know what the the, the the gift there, as you mentioned, is the the adoption in, in, in the place of Christ. Um, but the responsibility is to maintain that. And the way you do that is through that living relationship with God. And that, I guess you could say at that individual level, but then with the community, with the bishop under which you are baptized. And where do you do that most profoundly? But the Eucharist, right? So it's not, so it's, it, it is a gift, but it's also your duty. Um, mm -hmm. Which maybe is not so. Uh, I've mentioned to Abu Jeremy before that I think of my father as really duty oriented, hmm. and I think duty is sort of when you do something out of your duty, it's sort of frowned upon because it's like you know it's like less than ideal. Maybe thing you know it's maybe it's it's rote, it's mechanical, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. or like contrary to our desires, maybe. Correct. You know, there's a sense of like your duty is contrary to your desire, um, which sometimes is, sometimes isn't maybe, but I don't know. I, I, I thought when Father Paul was talking about the duty, the responsibility aspect of it, which hopefully flows out of that knowing what baptism is, knowing who God is and desiring all of that. I don't know, the sense of responsibility and duty takes on a really lovely aspect. Um, Yes. <laughs> Amen. I want some of that. So we can maybe just flip over to uh, chapter 12 uh, of the letter to the Romans. Which is, this is what Nelson has been said. Before we go, can I? Yeah. I, I was hoping to get your thoughts about, about this part. Um, uh, at the end of chapter 6, starting at verse 20. Slaves of sin, but then we are set free from sin. Now we've become slaves of God. Um, yesterday you gave a conference to the, Abba Jeremy gave a conference to us on, on obedience, on the labor of obedience, and how, mm. that's how St. Benedict begins. 
So it strikes me now that that's actually five, six, and seven are very obedience heavy. So Adam's obedience to sin or disobedience to God, and then mm. Christ's obedience to God. Um, and then he moves, and then St. Paul moves on to our obedience to God and, disobe- and not obeying sin anymore. Mm-hmm. But the way he puts that is slaves of God. Um, that's kind of a, that's not a light phrase. It's not just you get along with God or you have a good relationship with God. It's you're a slave of God. Yeah. Um, well, let's read the whole thing then at, at verse 15. Uh, what does all this lead to? Just because we are not under the law, but under grace, are we free to sin? By no means. You must realize that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey. Whether yours is the slavery of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to justice. Here we're still... Paul is still back on on the Adam thing. Uh, But the way that Adam's sin made the whole human race a slave to sin. And and now he says what you're going to exchange that with is obedience. Uh, And the obedience is Christ's obedience. And so he means when he says obedience he says any slave is going to be obedient. Uh, he's playing with the word slave because slave to sin, that's obviously no good. But slave is not a good word, but he's sort of like, going, well, now you get to be like a good slave because what you're a slave to is justice. What you're a slave to is, is, is God. Which is to say, you're in a right relationship with God. You're Adam and Eve were in the beautiful garden, and they were in a beautiful relationship to Him. You could say they were enslaved to Him, and that's right where it. Oh, we don't want to be. We want to be. We want to be in charge. He asked us to do something, and we won't do it. That's the sin. But no. To be in a right relationship with God, he's like putting slaves, I would say, in quotation marks. Verse 17, thanks be to God. Though you were once slaves to sin, you sincerely obeyed the rule of teaching which was imparted to you. Freed from sin, you have become slaves of justice. And then that's where Nels, uh, that's where uh, what Brother Israel is saying picks up at verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you had freedom from justice. Yeah, freedom from justice. That's no good. That's, that, that's, that's slave. Yeah. yeah. He, I mean, it's very, Paul's crazy sometimes. I mean, he's really, <laughs> in the sense of he, he's really got, he's just all charged up. That's what he's writing as an all charged up kind of guy. He's excited. See, it sounds crazy. You have to, you have to kind of pry your way through these verses. Huh? Uh, but what benefit did you enjoy when you were free from justice? Mm. See how you think? Is that, you know, I, I was telling my class the other day about this nice flight attendant friend I have who's a, who's a total evangelizer. Yeah. And her name is Margie. And she just goes up to people on the airplane. She can pick out fallen away Catholics and, and, <laughs> and say, I bet you were Catholic once. She always does the flights to Rome, you know. And she says, are you Catholic? <laughs> 
I don't know how she gets away with it in her business. But <laughs> middle, uh, and she said, well, I used to be a Catholic, you know, and she goes, oh, yeah, you're not anymore? She says, how's that working for you? How's that <laughs> But, you know, it's the same question. Well, you were, you were free from justice. Oh, how's that working for you? Is that going okay? Did you like that? You know, slaves then? How was that? Was that was that good? Yeah. Oh, obedient? You don't want to be obedient? Oh, well, okay. Wow. How's that going to work for you? I mean, where does happiness lie, you guys? Obviously, it lies in being slave to God. Mm. Then I'm not afraid of the word slave. Let, let me finish. Go back to Paul. But what benefit did you enjoy? The things you are now ashamed of all of them tending toward death. But now that you are freed from sin and become slaves of God, and who, now he's sort of saying, who minds being a slave of God? Because when you're a slave of God, you're not slaving at all. You are in sweet relationship with him. That's it. I mean, he doesn't mean slave in a bad sense. Like, oh, I have a poor self-image. I'm a slave of God. Uh, I hope I go to heaven if I act good. Now, that isn't what he means. He's, he's ironically using the word slave of God here. Okay. Uh, now that you're slaves of God, your benefit is sanctification as you tend toward the eternal life. Is there something wrong with that? Sanctification? that leads to eternal life, that's what you get for being a slave of God. You catch the irony there in the use of the word slave? The wages of sin is death. So go ahead and sin. (laughs) Bye-bye, you'll be dead. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's it's a magnificent letter. The whole of Romans roars along like this, you know. Uh, yeah. the, the letter to the Romans is is over the top. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is the strongest of Paul's letters, I think. Yeah. What uh, came to mind here is that we don't really have a choice of whether to be or not to be a slave. Maybe another angle is yeah. we don't have a choice of whether to be or not to be a sheep in thinking of Jesus' parable of the good shepherd. We're all sheep and we're all going to follow someone. And here with Paul, we're all going to be slaves to someone. What Jesus lays for us is we can either be a sheep who follow, who follows a hireling and then when the wolf comes, the hireling will, she- will flee and this wolf will snatch us. Or we can be a sheep who follows Christ, the good shepherd. And when we do that, he lays down his life for us. Yeah, we just, just follow, I mean, not even the hireling, just follow the wolf, wolf himself. I mean, <laughs> the scary thing is that St. Paul's saying, that's actually an option for you. Yeah. Uh, even once you're baptized, you can be the best sinner you want. Uh, so even like there, even mm. as it's calling us slaves of God, you're saying you are free to to break that. Um, mm. 
to your own to your own death. But I don't know. It's it, it is it is kind of scary because he's saying God's not going to make you anymore. I mean, he's giving you everything um, to move forward in this life. Uh, I think yeah. I, just going back to the the question about you know what why why am I still sinning and why why remember why be aware of this um, it just kind of as, as we're making our way to this last part of chapter six I don't know this is I guess more of my personal reaction to it when I consider my own sinfulness you know whether it's in preparation for confession or just like you know I've just gotten angry at somebody and, um, now I'm irritated, now I'm frustrated, now I don't want to see anybody, I just want to lock myself up in my cell or something. Um, it's the memory, it's remembering what Christ has done, it's remembering Him, that maybe it doesn't give me like an automatic fix, but it opens like a door that wasn't there before. It tells me, look at where you are, look at how you, look at just how you feel when you're mad at somebody when you want to strangle somebody, when you have just lied, when you've just been lied to, look at all of what your life looks like in that. And now think of Christ and think of what he's done and think of what he's done for you. And St. Paul's saying, don't you see there's another way? Um, and that way is open now. It was closed before, but now it's open. Um, I don't know, maybe... That's I don't know if that's kind of getting a little bit at what he means by the awareness that if you are aware of what baptism is, what happens at baptism, that's a title for a great book. Okay. <laughs> what happens at baptism? Yeah, what happens at baptism? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you really are aware, like if in that moment of anger, if in that moment of sin, you remember baptism and are aware of baptism, you can say there's more to life than this. Without, without that, without Christ, there is nothing more to life. Um, but I guess it's it just, I, I don't know, it's, it's that that awareness. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just repeating myself, but the awareness opens up a new possibility, a new way of being. Yeah, I think that maybe you're talking about that awareness and also, you know, how to deal with your anger and your frustration with people yourself. I really think of the importance of prayer of just personal prayer and meditation time and time with Jesus. And I've seen how it, it's helped me in my own life. It's like, well, you're talking about that frustration with somebody or somebody's hurt you, or you've hurt somebody you've sinned all this, I guess, unpeace in your soul. If you just spend some, you know, quality time with the Lord you can really kind of refocus on, you know, this baptism theology, but just, just the salvation history in general. Like if you see, I guess you, it helps you see, see life from Christ's view and not your own, yeah. not that, that sinful, that slave to sin is what we're becoming in those instances yeah. of some sin or anger or something that's yeah. making us unpeaceful to come back to the Lord maybe Lexio Divina reading scripture or whatever, where you can hear the Lord speaking to you and begin to see, see the world again as Christ sees it and not how we see it when we're in the sin. I'm thinking, 
Yeah, it, I like how you phrase it. That uh, reminded me. Uh, we read we read a bit of a John Paul Sartre in when I was in the undergraduate in one of our classes on we had a elective on existentialism, uh, and John Paul Sartre gets a bad rep, but I thought he made a really good point when he talks about human freedom and human actions that every act a man living his life a woman living her life in in his and her actions he or she is telling the world what it means to be human um saying so then when you do something it carries like this sort of universal weight because you're you're by your actions by your life you're proclaiming to the world look at my life this is what i think it means to be human so when it when we sin I don't know, it makes an ugly image of, we're saying, oh, this ugly thing is what it means to be human. But what you said just now, the moment of prayer really becoming our focusing on what does Christ's life show us about what it means to be human? What do his actions tell us? No, 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 this is what it means to be human. Um, mm-hmm. That's a kind of, Yeah, thank you for that. That's a sort of like a different way of looking at that time of prayer. Um, yeah, thank you. It's popping into my head. All this stuff, uh, Brother Israel mentioned the conference I gave to the monks last night uh, on obedience, you know, and, and there's, it's St. Benedict's teaching on this is so beautiful, and it, and it really is very much marked by Chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Romans. That word obedience freaks us out. That's that's just a cultural problem that we have to get past. Nobody, if you're if you're just an American living in this culture, you think, well, no, I, you know, it just sort of you you feel the word slave if if you have to be the word obedient. But uh, I, I want to read again what I just find a tremendous summary of chapter 5 uh, at verse 19, just that one verse, just as through one man's disobedience, Adam, all became sinners, so through one man's obedience, all shall become just. The, the, the rule of Benedict begins with that thought as a description of the whole monastic life. Uh, the first, the first verse of the of the prologue of the rule says, "Listen, my son." And then, what do you listen to? Here's the first thing you're supposed to listen to: the labor of obedience will bring you back to Him from whom you have drifted through the sloth of disobedience. The whole monastic life is conceived by Saint Benedict as what he calls the labor of obedience bringing you back. He's talking about the old Adam coming back into right relationship with God. But then uh, in the the chapter, which is chapter five on obedience, he beautifully characterizes an attitude that is supposed to surround obedience, which is anything like, oh, no, I have to be obedient, you know. And I I know this as as monks, when the abbot starts talking about obedience, everybody gets nervous, like, oh, you're going to ask me to do something. (laughs) I just go, calm down, everybody. This is is just about the pattern uh, of Christ's life. But uh, listen to the opening sentence 
uh, uh, in the chapter on obedience. The first step of humility is unhesitating obedience, which comes naturally to those who cherish Christ above all. So it's about our relationship with Christ. We love Christ. That's what got us to the monastery. And so, okay, I want to be like Christ. Monastic life is imitation of Christ. How will I be like Christ? By being obedient to the will of another. And then St. Benedict uh, in this chapter says, you know, the, the monk who is quickly and unhesitating obedience he is, he says this, conforming himself to the Lord who said, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the monastic life, I always like to say monastic life is what it's good for is to show all Christians who know about it. So you guys included who aren't, it shows you the ingredients of any Christian life clearly. And the ingredients of any Christian life are I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' whole being reversed the sin of Adam by his doing the Father's will. And then he says, this obedience will be acceptable to God and agreeable to others only if it is done not cringingly or sluggishly or half-heartedly, but cheerfully. This amazing practical advice, cheerfully being obedient. And I like he says, uh, it's uh, acceptable to God. So like that's an offering to God. Paul says, offer your bodies to God. And then agreeable to men in, in, in Latin, it's the word dulcis, which means sweet. There's something just like attractive about the human being who does willingly the will of the Father. Anyway, that's some of the stuff I got going on about with the monks. and Arthur. So if, if any of our listeners want to hear it, all you have to do is enter the monastery as a novice <laughs> and then wait until the conference. Yes. Um, we have just a couple of minutes, so maybe you want to... has done that. He hears them all. <laughs> yeah. One of the guys that gets scared when I talk about it. Yeah. Who's this? Brother Israel. Ah. <laughs> One, a, a quick... Sorry, brother? I was just going to say a quick thing about obedience. Something that has really helped me is the etymology that it really does mean listen, doesn't it, Father? Yeah, it does. Uh-huh. So even those first two verse, two lines from St. Yeah. Benedict's rule... Yeah. There, it's. I mean, they're they're basically. It's basically redundant, right? It's listen, be obedient. <laughs> sort of, but so later on in the rule, this is kind of going down another rabbit hole. But later on in the rule, and it might be on that same uh, first step of humility, um, he kind of tweaks obedience so that he has obedience be the master speaks and then the disciple carries out the wishes of the, of the, of the master. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like a dance because he says they happen as if they were one action. No sooner did the, did the master speak than the disciple carries it out. Yeah. Um, so it's like an active listening, right? It's like, it's a listen with an action implied. Yeah. But the, yes. And then with the added sense of the, the harmony and the grace, mm-hmm. grace of it, 
um, again, maybe going to the Dulce's part of it, the beauty, there's something just beautiful when, you know, one action, you know, is met with another and I don't know, the, the word synergy comes up in my yeah. mind. We talk a lot about synergy in that more Trinitarian Christological sense, but um, yeah. I don't know, when things move in, a, in, a, in, a, in an order, there's just something beautiful about that. Obedience is a thing of beauty too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes, which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theologyatmountangel.com, that's theologyatmtangel.com, and to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, We ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time.